Here in chapter 9, the matter of light and blindness come into view. Now, usually blindness and light don't go together. For a blind person, their world is often described as that of darkness. If we enter a room that has no light in it, we say that we are blind as bats. Yet, try waking up in the middle of the night and quickly switching on the lights. You'll find for a little while at least that you'll be blinded, blinded by the light. Squinting because the eye, the light hurts your eyes and rendering you, at least temporarily, sightless. The irony is you would have been better off staying in the dark. You probably would have been able to see better than with the lights on, having been blinded by the light. You see, while some people live in light and they have sight, they are really and actually truly blind. And while there may be those who live in darkness because of blindness, they actually have perfect sight, for they have, perhaps, the true light. Now, that's no less the case here in the passage that we have before us. The irony given to us in chapter 9 is sharp, and it cuts to the heart. For in our passage, we see that those who have sight are actually completely blind. And we find that while those who are physically blind actually have shown themselves to have great vision and sight. So as we see here in our passage, it should be said right away what an incredible passage of Scripture this is. The story that is here narrated for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by John is so well recorded that it has a remarkable dramatic flair to it. It presents to us a very lively picture of what happened. You read through this text, you are stunned. The irony bites and you are taken aback, and we are somewhat left shocked by the events. Now, the opening scene, verses 1 through 7, begins with a blind man. This man is apparently begging on the side of the road. And the disciples stop. They stop and they ask Jesus, Who sinned, this man or his parents? You see, the disciples have a quid pro quo theology. They believe that if things don't go well for you, that means that you have committed some sin to lead God to judge you so as not to have your life go so well. It is the theology of the friends of Job. Now, to be sure, often our sin does cause bad consequences, but not necessarily so. After all, God is sovereign, and He can use sinful deeds for good. Jesus' response is immediate. It's not because of His sin, and it is not because of His parents' sin that this man was blind from birth. Well, Jesus, why then is he blind? Is it bad luck? No, not at all. God is sovereign. So Jesus explains that this man was blind from birth for this very moment, the very moment that we are about to see unfold before us, so that the works of God and the glory of God might be displayed in him, this man who once was blind but now can see. Some vessels, after all, are made for honor. Some are made for dishonor. This man, who appeared for so long to be a vessel of dishonor, is turned around, and he is made a vessel of honor. Of course, he is made a vessel of honor, not for his own sake, 
not for his own glory, but rather, as is clear here in our passage, for the glory of God, and in particular, the glory of Jesus, for his revelation, that Jesus, through this man, might preach to the world yet another message, that he might say something to the world and to us, even down to today, something about who he is and the work that he has come to do. That is, after all, why Jesus performs the signs that he performs. They are not for themselves. They are not even for the people who benefit from those signs. But ultimately, the signs are given as a self-disclosure of the glory, the person, and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 4 through 5, Jesus anticipates what he will do. He will do the works of God, that is to say, the works of God for which this man has been destined even from birth. For Jesus is the light of the world while he is here on earth. And as the light, he will give sight to the blind. As the light of the world, he will dispel this man's darkness. So Jesus spits on the ground and he he mixes dirt and saliva to make mud and he places the mud on the man's blind eyes. Then he tells the man to go to the pool of Siloam and the man is to wash the mud off his blind eyes. And the man does so. And as he washes the mud off his eyes, he opens his eyes and he is able to see, behold, the light has dispelled the darkness. The blind can see. And now this man is able to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now in the next section, verses 7 through 12, we see that the neighbors come out and they see this man that they have known from birth. They see this man and they see that this man can see. And they're wondering, isn't this the man that we have known? Is this not the beggar of our neighborhood? Is this not the homeless guy that has walked through our neighborhood begging and asking for provisions? Is he not the one who is blind and unable to care for himself, the one that we know so well? Now, some of the neighbors say, no, that's not him. It's got to be someone else. It's got to be someone different. Others say, no, that's him. And so they decide to go to the man himself to settle the question. And they ask, how is it? How can it be that you, once blind, can now see? Now, at this point, many may have become ashamed. Some may have clammed up in light of the good thing that happens, which has happened to them. But this man does not clam up. This man is not ashamed of the man who healed his blindness. This man is bold and will see the character of this man develop throughout the narrative that is before us. The character of this man will develop and we will see he becomes more and more bold. And he speaks to the neighbors. He speaks of what it is that Jesus has done for him. Now, they do want to know where this Jesus is. But he genuinely doesn't seem to know, or he's lying to protect Jesus. We don't know for sure exactly, but he doesn't give them 
the location of our Lord. Now the crowd that is gathered around, they're not happy with this. They want blood. So in verses 13 through 17, they bring the man to the Pharisees, and we see it's not the blind man's blood that they crave, but rather it is the blood of Jesus thereafter. You see, John tells us it was the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath, the day of the Lord, upon which Jesus has healed this man. And what is worse, Jesus made mud. He worked. It wasn't healing so much that got him in trouble as much as the the process, the work, the energy that it took to mix the mud and the saliva. See, the crowds know this. And now they know that Jesus has made mud. And they know that if they can get this man to tell his story to the Pharisees, Jesus will have charges brought against him, that he will be accused of breaking the Sabbath. And of course, we see in verse 16, the Pharisees are all over this opportunity. They rashly conclude that Jesus cannot be from God, because why? Because he has broken the Sabbath. Although not all the Pharisees agreed. Some of them were saying, how could a man who is not of God perform such signs? And so there was a division among them, some a little bit more pro-Jesus, others anti-Jesus. Then the Pharisees go back to the man and they begin their inquiry. They ask him his opinion. He supposedly opened your eyes. Tell us, what do you think? Who is he? And again, our formerly blind man is bold in his speech, and he declares that he thinks that Jesus is a prophet. Now, obviously, this man's boldness wasn't genetic. He didn't inherit it from his parents, because in verses 18 through 23, we see that his parents are not so bold. The parents stand in stark contrast to the man who has been healed of his blindness. The Pharisees, not getting any satisfaction from this man, still lacking the proper argument to show Jesus to be false and worthy of charges, call the man's parents in for an inquiry, an inquisition. Come, tell us. Tell us what you think. And their hope is to find out, actually, that the man was really never blind to begin with. And if they can prove that the man was never blind to begin with, then they can prove, they think, that Jesus is a farce. Have you ever tried to convince someone of something and your your argument is, is so clear, the evidence so obvious, and yet despite all of the evidence, despite the clarity of your argumentation, they persist in their error? Now you know what these contentious types can be like. They're the type of people when you say black, they say white. You say it's there, they say it's not. You see it, they don't. They don't see it, or you don't see it, and they do. These contentious types, that's what we have here in the Pharisees. This is what we have in the Pharisees in a nutshell. They are always contrary. But they are also, in this passage, disappointed. The parents come in and affirm the blindness of their son. 
But that's not good enough for the Pharisees. And so they continue to inquire. They, they, they affirm that he was indeed born blind, but they also say that they don't know how he has gained his sight. Actually, they probably do know, but probably, almost certainly in this context, they're afraid to say so. They're afraid to tell the Pharisees something that they don't want to hear. John tells us in verse 22, in fact, that they feared the Jews. You see, these Pharisees were not the pastoral type. These Pharisees were bullies. They were tyrants. They ruled by fear, not by the gracious word of God. So what do they do? The parents here, somewhat cowardly, turn the focus, the spotlight back upon their son. Hey, why don't you go ask him? If you have all these questions and you really want to know, ask him. He's of age. He can answer for himself. He's a big boy. If anyone's going to get in trouble, let it be him, not us. And so the parents show themselves to be cowardly, not nearly as bold as their son. But their son would not prove to be like them in their cowardice. In verses 24 to 34, we see his boldness yet once again. The Pharisees come again to him, saying that they, despite their lack of evidence, know that Jesus is a sinner. In other words, what they're saying is that they know that Jesus is a liar. They know that he's not really the Messiah, and despite all the evidence to the contrary, despite having given sight to the blind, they know for sure that this guy is a fake. But this man's courage is unabated. You see, one thing that you need to know about bullies, one thing you need to know about the Pharisees, is that you don't question them. You don't talk back to them. You just sort of agree with them if you know what's good for you. But this man, in reply, says, well, I don't know if he's a sinner, but what I do know is that I once was blind, but now I can see. You see, the blind man's problem here, according to the Pharisees, or the now man who can see who once was blind, what his problem is, according to the Pharisees, is that he doesn't tell them what they want to hear. He doesn't agree with them. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. You say he's a sinner. I don't know if he's a sinner. But what I do know is this, that once I was blind, but now I can see. And in verse 26, they again ask how it is that Jesus gave this man sight. But listen to his response, the response that he gives to us here in verse 27. The response that he gives is quite remarkable indeed. He says this, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) What boldness, what courage to talk back to the powers that be this way. You guys aren't listening to me. What are you, deaf? Why do you want to hear it again? Maybe you have a secret fascination for this man and you really actually secretly want to be his disciples. 
Why are you so obsessed with him? Why do you keep talking about him? Why do you keep asking me about him? You're so obsessed with him, maybe you actually really want to be his followers. Quickly, they respond now with more levels of indignation, saying that they're disciples of Moses, not of Jesus. But as for Jesus, they say they don't know where he's come from. But the man's reply is nothing short of genius. Never before has anyone opened the eyes of the blind, he says. And yet, this Jesus just did. And if this man, Jesus, were not from God, surely God would not have listened to him and opened the eyes of the blind. Therefore, Jesus must be of God. That's the implied argument of this man who once was blind but now can see. Well, you can imagine what kind of a response this solicited from the Pharisees. The Pharisees are not pleased with this man at all. Their pride prevents them from being taught by a mere beggar. They refuse to learn from a man who is born, as they think, in utter sin. So not caring to hear from this man anymore, they do what bullies in the church do. They kick him out. Now, in verses 35 to 39, we see that Jesus and the man once again get together. And Jesus asks the man if he believes in the Son of Man. Now, that term, son of man, was a messianic term. In other words, Jesus is saying, do you believe in the Messiah, the son of man prophesied by Daniel so long ago? The man replies by saying, who is he that I may believe? And Jesus very appropriately says this, you have seen him, this man, once blind can now see. This man, once blind, has now laid his eyes upon the Son of Man. Instantly, the man knows that Jesus is speaking about himself. And look at the words that the man speaks. He says, Lord, I believe. And right there and then, he falls on the ground and he worships Jesus. But then that remarkable saying of Jesus that's given in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You see the reversal here. Jesus has come to switch things up, to turn things on their head to turn things upside down. He's come to give sight to the blind and to give blindness to the seeing. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. It's turning things in a whole new way from their natural course of things. Now, in verse 40, such a comment doesn't go unheard by the Pharisees. And they know what he's talking about. They see themselves in his words, and they're offended. And we can understand why. They realize that in these words, Jesus is calling them blind. Blind as bats. More blind 
than this man was before he received his sight. And in verse 41, Jesus explains why their sin is so bad. They claim to see. They say they are true believers. They say they love Moses, that they know the scriptures. But such claims only double their guilt. Such claims not only make them sinners, but such claims make them hypocrites as well, the worst kind of sinner. They pretend to be the disciples of Moses when really they're the disciples of the devil. Now, what in the world is Jesus doing in this passage? Why is he here giving sight to this blind man? Is he offering for us a paradigm, maybe a pattern for Christian ministry today? Is the essence of Christian ministry in the church to hold healing services, to heal those who are sick, or to give sight to those who are blind? Of course not. Jesus is saying something much more important. He is saying, and now invoking the language of Isaiah 42, verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You see, the old now is giving way to the new in Isaiah 42, when the servant of the Lord comes to give sight to the blind. He goes on, verse 6 in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. You see, this is why Jesus does what he does. This is what Jesus has in mind when he says he is the light of the world. He is the light of the world because he dispels the darkness. It is he himself who is able to give sight to the blind. Remember what Isaiah wrote back in chapter 6 of his prophecy, verse 9. And he said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You see, the Messiah comes in judgment. When he comes in judgment, that judgment has a twofold effect. For his own, it is a judgment unto salvation and unto sight. For those who are not his own, for those who do not believe in him but reject him and his covenant, he judges them unto condemnation and blindness. He comes to give sight and light to his people, and he comes to blind his enemies. And the irony of Jesus' message couldn't be more rich. Those born blind will see, and those born seeing will become blind, will be blinded by him who is the light of the world. But of course, light and sight all have here 
redemptive significance. To see and to receive the light is an idiom for being saved and receiving the salvation and redemption of the Lord. Notice the close connection between the blind man and his receiving sight on the one hand and then his later subsequent faith in the Messiah on the other. Jesus asks the man if he believes in the Son of Man, and this guy replies, Lord, I believe. You see, receiving sight, this man receiving his sight was not an end in itself, but the receiving of sight was an indicator, a pointer. It was a bit of a visible, tangible kind of parable to point to this fact that the old is passing away and behold, the new covenant has dawned. New things are being declared by God in Christ. A new thing is about to occur. The day of the Lord, of His judgment and salvation has arrived in Jesus Christ. So in other words, the miracle of curing the man with blindness was indicative of a redemptive historical shift that is occurring in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In this way, then, the reception of sight points to how God's people, His elect, will receive salvation. It points to the fact that this man has received something so much more valuable than his physical sight. He has received the kingdom itself. So that it is by faith, faith alone, apart from the works of the law, faith alone in the Messiah and His work alone, that brings about the redemption of this man, his receiving sight, simply a visible parable to that end. Of course, it was always by faith alone in the Messiah, even under the old covenant. But now that the Messiah has come, He brings division between those who are blind but now see, on the one hand, and those who can see but are really blind on the other. And this is what this text means for us. It is a call to you and to me. It is a call even down to this very day and to this very moment that we hear these words. It is a call to faith in the Son of Man. The implied call is that all might see Christ, to behold Him with the new eyes of spirit-wrought faith in our hearts, as that faith has been informed by Christ's own very revealed Word. But what is more, it is a call to not be blind. It is a call and a warning to all who would be like the Pharisees, and to imbibe the hypocrisy that so characterizes them. You see, the problem of hypocrisy existed not just in Israel, but it exists also in the church today. And by hypocrisy, I don't mean this idea that you struggle with a sin. That's the way that the world looks at it. Oh, you've sinned and you claim to be a Christian? You're a hypocrite. I'm talking about those who go to church who are members, who say that they are believers, but underneath it all, 
They're just really spiritually blind. Not that they make an error or a mistake or a sin here and there, or they struggle with a particular sin, but underneath all of the facade, their hearts remain unregenerate. They're not born again. They think they are. They think they are church members, real, true church members, who live pretty good moral lives, and yet all along they cannot see the significance of the redemptive work of Christ which is given for the forgiveness of sins. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you have become perfect, ceasing to sin, but what it does mean is that you have been forgiven and redeemed of your sins, both its guilt and its power, by the work of Jesus Christ. And so won't you come? Won't you come to see Jesus? Won't you fix your eyes upon Christ and behold Him in all of His glory, in all of His splendor? My prayer is that all who would be listening to this message would heed the testimony of this blind beggar and recognize that by nature, by birth, we are spiritually blind, that we might go to Jesus to to have sight. Now, for us, for you, if you are in Christ and listening to this message, if you are in the light, the Bible exhorts us to walk in the light. That if we are in the light, if we have been filled with the light of Christ, we are to walk and live our lives in a way that is commensurate with that glorious reality. Let that light shine before all, that all might see and give glory to God. Let us give up the ways of darkness. If we are in the light, let us no longer walk in the darkness. Let us give up those dark ways, those dark thoughts, those dark patterns of behavior and dark speech. And let us turn to live the light of life, to think spirit-enlightened thoughts, and to speak words which are filled with light and with truth. And let us do that all to the praise and to the glory of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.